The best place to play fantasy football this summer is Underdog Fantasy. Their best ball mania tournament has $10 million in total prize money, and the best part is you just draft your fantasy football team, and that's it. There's no waivers, no trades, no in-season management. Underdog gives you your best score each week of the season, and the highest scores at the end of the year win. The champion of best ball mania last year drafted in June, so there's no time like the present to join Underdog and take your shot in a million-dollar draft. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with promo code PFF. Also, if you play 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store. Play $10 with code PFF and draft your best ball mania team today. Welcome back into the studio here. Yeah, I got, uh, for those watching on YouTube, I'm going to cover up Peyton Manning in the background. Uh, he'll either be very excited to hear or disappointed to hear who ends up coming up number one on the QB GOAT countdown. That is what I'm going to discuss today. We finally made it. We started at number 50. We counted down 10 at a time, all the way down to the top 10. And then did 10 through 6 on Monday five through one today. It's going to be thorough today going through these. And I don't expect everyone to agree with this. I think there's one name in particular that people will believe should probably not even be in the top 10. But if you've been paying attention, if you've been playing along, you know that this person is going to be in the top 10. I mean, not in the top five. And I'll also talk about some ideas for how I can maybe affect the methodology going forward and ideas on where some players who did not qualify because they do not have eight starting seasons yet, where they may be ranking as of now to look at the future greats, where they're going to be coming in into the top 50 in future seasons. Okay, so let's talk methodology again up top real quick so that everyone's on the same page here. There are three major categories. And when I'm going to describe this, I'm going to go ahead and bring up 10 through six. So we can go over those again. So there are three major inputs into the statistical greatest quarterback of all time formula. I tried to put together something I thought that rewarded high end play did not reward average play or below average play. I tried to put something together that rewarded playoffs significantly, much more than the games played, of course, but didn't put all of the weighting into the playoffs. This is not a QB rings type of discussion. And I also wanted to weight something where peak play is a contribution. So if you accumulate a certain number of amount of value over 20 years versus someone who had 12, 15 years of better play and a higher peak, we could give a little bit of a bump to that second individual for that peak play, move them up a bit because we're talking about greatness here. It's not just going to be accumulating. It's not just going to be availability. It's going to be giving your team the best chance to have the best record in the NFL and eventually win the Super Bowl. Now, that doesn't always happen when you're the best quarterback. You're going to see that a lot here, even for Tom Brady, even for the one most people assume is the GOAT. He's not necessarily winning championships when he has his best seasons. 
We saw that for sure in 2007, and I'll discuss that. So I I wanted to weight all those different things together. It's basically 60% of the calculation is regular season efficiency over average passing the ball with a rushing contribution added into it. 20% peak rolling five-year period. So the best rolling five-year period for that player. And that's where the rankings come into. And then playoffs, and that is the efficiency added over average in the playoffs. So if you're just in the playoffs and your team is carrying you to victories, you're not getting credit. In fact, if you're playing poorly, you could be getting a negative to the calculation despite moving on when the team plays well. And the example here I have with Roger Staubach being number 10, you can see he's number 10. He had the 10th best career, the eighth best peak. He had a shorter career. And then he was seventh best in the playoffs, performing extremely well in the playoffs. Let me count down the rest of six all the way, you know, six through 10, and then we'll get on to the top five. So Staubach is 10. Steve Young was nine. He's more, he's the most extreme career to peak career was only 13 with about eight real starting seasons versus a peak of two, not as great of of a contributor in the playoffs as you might think. Only have one championship though. Next Aaron Rodgers. Playoffs, not so great, but I also showed as part of his analysis that he's actually played better than most people think in the playoffs. He had some unfortunate outcomes, especially in those conference championship games. Career eight, peak nine. Now he's going to move up, I think, by looking at the total accumulation of value, what he could conceivably add over the next two, three years, assuming he doesn't play much longer than that, could maybe get him up to six, maybe five possible to get into the top five, but he's not really in contention now after a down period from 2015 through 2019. He's not really in contention now to get into the top few. Johnny Unitas, number seven, uh, played in a different era, so maybe we should give him a little bit of a boost for a lesser chance at longevity there, but a career seven, peak seven, playoff 13. And then... Joe Montana. This one was the most controversial one. And I, I am already thinking about tweaking methodology, which is probably not a great thing since I haven't finished this last countdown, but just, I've been going through it. I have been thinking about tweaking methodology. And if so, you could get Montana up a little bit higher because of that playoff ranking at five and the career ranking at five, you could probably get him up to five, maybe even four. Um, but his peak play was not as high as you might think for his efficiency. He was excellent though, in the playoffs and it moved him up here. Okay. So we have, Six through 10, uh, some people in the stream last time had identified who the five players were, the five quarterbacks were, who I hadn't mentioned so far. They were correct about that. And number five is going to be the player who I think most people are going to think is the worst player of these top five, and that is Drew Brees. He comes in at number five for the statistical go to QB rankings. His career ranking is third. So he had longevity and consistent outperformance, consistent efficiency throwing the ball during the regular season. His peak is only 11. So he did not have the peak play. And I think peak play definitely comes maybe even a little bit more into people's minds when they're thinking about the greatest of all time than my 20% weighting in this calculation. That's why some people probably would think Breeze doesn't even belong in the top five and his playoff number is 26. He didn't play poorly in the playoffs as I'll show, 
but didn't have a ton of opportunity versus some of the other greats who put up a ton of playoff um, production. So just if you want to know, again, we're ranking this against all these different quarterbacks going back to 1946. So to say that Breeze is ranked 26th, well, what sort of guys are at the top here? I mean, Bart Starr is number one. Terry Bradshaw is number two. Uh, Otto Graham, Charlie Connerly. So a lot of these older guys who are getting to the championship game consistently are in there. And then Joe Montana, Kenny Stabler, Roger Staubach, uh, Johnny Unitas, John Elway. Those are the type of names that we're seeing at the top. Tom Brady's in there too, but he's uh, a little bit lower. So 26, and that holds down his ranking a bit for Drew Brees and his playoff ranking. Okay, let's take a look at his production, his adjusted net yards per attempt scaled to league average being 100 on here. And I did, I've added something a little bit new here. I have the the indications on here for when players won any sort of accolades, but then I also have a ring above their ring season. So we have one first team all pro for Breeze in 2016, four second team all pros in 2008, 2009, 2011, and 2018. And then winning the ring at the same time as he won the second team all pro in 2009. Okay. So when thinking about Breeze and the lack of that high end play, no MVPs. So he doesn't have MVPs on here. He's the only quarterback in the top five who does not have an MVP. He was second in MVP voting four different times. So this is not a Russell Wilson, Ben Roethlisberger type of situation where there was no acknowledgement of high-end play, no acknowledgement in the MVP voting. He did get the second place four different times there. And he does have, again, I mentioned the Super Bowl ring and the Super Bowl MVP, which some quarterbacks do not have. Right now, Drew Brees is second behind only Tom Brady in career passing yards and touchdowns. He's first, though, in passing yards per game at 280 per game. Eventually, he'll probably be passed by Patrick Mahomes or or whomever can qualify there. But as of now, for guys who have played at least five seasons, he is number one in most passing yards per game. He led the NFL in passing yards seven different times during his career. That's as many times as Tom Brady and Peyton Manning combined. Uh, Breeze was top 12 in passing efficiency every year from 2004 So his third year in the league, back when he was with the San Diego Chargers, all the way through the end of his career. He still was top 12 in efficiency, even in in that last year in 2020, where his play was falling off a bit there. That's what gives him such a huge accumulation of value throughout the years. Though he was never first, he never ranked first in passing efficiency in any season. He did rank second four different times and third, another three times. So high, high-end play, never quite the, the, the off-the-charts type of peaks we'll see for some other players. Okay, so let's talk about playoffs, since that's the one thing that was holding Breeze down, according to this calculation. So again, he won in 2009. He, he won that year. But if you think about it, he did not get a lot of support on the defensive side of the ball in these playoff losses. So if you look through all of his different playoff losses that he's had, the Saints never gave up fewer than 23 points in any of those playoff losses. And they averaged giving up 31 points per loss. In his first three playoff losses, 
So the ones in that he had with the Saints. So in 2006, 2010, and 2011, in those three games, the, the Saints defense gave up 39 points on average during those games. And in those games, Drew Brees averaged more than 400 passing yards per game. He had eight total touchdowns in those three games and three interceptions. So if you look at some of these stats, you could start to point out and say, hey, this guy played pretty well during those during those seasons. Now, what stands out to some people is at the end of his career. And I think it's unfortunate for a lot of players who are retiring in a right in people's mind. We have maybe Roethlisberger, Peyton Manning a few years ago, if you thought about him after the 2015 season, how he ended, and Drew Brees in some people's minds here. There may be this impression that Brees was someone who always faded away at the end of the season in the playoffs. Not the case if you look at the numbers here. He should have won more than he did. But he was poor in his age 40 and age 41 season in the playoffs, and that one may be sticking out in people's minds more than anything else. But look at these other seasons. If you look at 2009 when he won the championship, 2011 and 2017, he had over eight net yards, adjusted net yards per pass attempt in each one of those. And But he was only able to come away with that one Super Bowl, losing two other times in those best, best matchups that he, that he potentially had. Let's talk about supporting cast. Breeze is someone who strangely doesn't get a lot of credit necessarily as a game changer on the level of an Aaron Rodgers or someone of that ilk. But it's hard to point to him having extraordinarily good support. If you think about the players he played with throughout his career, Marcus Colston, you know, is a fine player. Jimmy Graham did have a first team all pro when he was there, was a weapon when he was there, but he also didn't really do a whole lot in his career outside of when he played for the Saints. Alvin Kamara has been a great option there, but then we've seen lots of running backs play with Drew Brees and be highly, highly productive. And then of course, Michael Thomas has a couple of first team all pros, though the perception of him is probably not even as a top five wide receiver anymore because he has fallen off a bit there and he could also be more a product of Breeze's production than the reverse. What you might think is that Breeze always had decent, you know, defensive support, offensive line, because he's had that over the course of the last few seasons, but that really wasn't the case. Also, he only had top 10 pass blocking grades for the saints only twice from 2006 to 2014, and then in the top 10, all but two seasons since. So it wasn't so great during 2006 to 2014, but it's been pretty good from 2015 on. That's probably what we remember. But Breeze was still putting up numbers and playing ex at extremely high level before that. It's just the team success was not necessarily there. And a bigger factor, I think, discounting Breeze than the surrounding talent is the head coach and playing with Sean Payton. So Peyton has probably only had his image enhanced in recent years as Breeze is declining and Teddy Bridgewater had to make some starts. Taysom Hill has had to make some starts. He's had a season going between Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston and still winning games with all of that. And I think some of that is probably taken away from Breeze's legacy. The Saints were combined nine and one with Teddy Bridgewater and Taysom Hill starting during the 2019 and 2020 seasons when Drew Brees had missed time. 
And another thing taken away from Breeze is the lack of team success, at least relative to some of these other quarterbacks. It's more like the down years for Breeze have been more significant than the down years for some other teams. So if you look at stretches here, this Breeze, it'd be hard to find any other top, top flight quarterback here like we had with Breeze and the Saints, where you could say they did not have a winning record in six of 10 seasons during a 10 season stretch here, like we saw with Breeze. They went seven and nine, four out of five seasons there. Awful cap management that they had during that period of time. It's funny that we laud the Saints now as being impervious to the cap and have defeated, have slayed the cap. They had some major, major cap issues there, and they lost a ton of talent because they had to let go of people there. And and again, the defense wasn't there, wasn't there at all to help Drew Brees during these, these times. The points against, if you're looking at these different seasons here, quite often they went from only giving up between 300 and 340 points per game when the Saints were winning Super Bowls and going straight into the playoffs and then having a bump up to 550, I mean, sorry, 450 to 475 points per game during those down years. Just a really poor supporting guys. One of the worst defenses that any of these top quarterbacks has had to play with throughout his career. And I think that detracts from the image of Breeze quite a bit. So I guess I would say for the total encapsulation of Drew Breeze is that stylistically, a high completion percentage quarterback like Breeze, who executes but doesn't wow, who has a very low yards per completion, low A dot, but can also periodically stretch the ball down the field in the dome. I think that is something that doesn't pop in people's minds. Breeze was not selected to the NFL 100 team. He was not selected to the all-decade team for the 2000s, which it's tough to do when you're playing with Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, but there could have been a possibility there. Bruce avoided INTs and sacks at elite level qualities that don't necessarily jump out at you. And I think he probably has the perception more of an executor than an artist when it came to being in the quarterback position. But if you look at his efficiency, you get a hint at why perhaps the perception doesn't quite match who Breeze is. Do I think he's top five? No. I think he's probably better placed somewhere between six and ten. But I don't think he should be completely out of the picture for something like an NFL 100 team. And if we saw the voting for that contest, he was not getting any votes for being from the 26-member committee there. He was basically completely ignored as part of that discussion. Okay, let's move on to number four. Dan Marino is number four on the QB GOAT discussion. His career ranking, career value accumulation is six, peak three. Another player who's who struggled in the playoffs, and we're actually going to see not the highest playoff ratings here. We have a lot of guys earlier that had playoff ratings here. And he's only 33 in the playoffs. He suffered like Breeze suffered from the lack of defense in the playoffs. And even in addition to that, During his career, he suffered a lot more from a lack of any sort of running efficiency, which didn't kill his efficiency, but it hurts when you're being put behind the eight ball often having to convert longer third downs than you would like to uh, at quarterback. Okay, first, before we even get into Dan Marino's career, I think we have to talk about who Dan Marino was in college because there's a very interesting documentary you should probably watch called Elway to Marino, 
It's an ESPN Films, NFL, actually, excuse me, NFL Films production. And he was the sixth quarterback drafted in the 1983 NFL draft with Elway going first, Jim Kelly going third. But then you start to look at some of the other names that had gone here and I'm fine quarterback, some of them, but Ken O'Brien, Tony Eason, Todd Blackledge, all going before Marino, who was the 27th pick of the first round. What held him down? He had a little bit of a disappointing senior season where he had 17 touchdowns to 23 interceptions in particular. But if you look at what he was doing years before, 37 touchdowns, 23 interceptions, 15 and 14 the year before, and putting up huge, huge numbers for college, especially at that point in time. I think there were also some rumors about some potential recreational drug use for Marino. So he fell all the way in this in this draft. But then the reality was when he came to the NFL, there has never been any quarterback when we're including how they played as a rookie who started off as hot as Dan Marino in the NFL. He was second team all pro as a rookie. So in other words, he was seen as being the second best quarterback in the NFL his first season as the 27th pick of the first round. Now, there's been some talk in the past saying, oh, you know, Justin Herbert, one of the greatest rookie seasons ever because he got some of the records as far as touchdown passes and accumulation of yards, things like that. I mean, Marino had the greatest rookie season in NFL history. He was third in the MVP voting as a rookie. So immediately he stepped in in that sort of level. Then in the second season, he took his game to a whole nother level. He wins the MVP. And according to my numbers, which are going to bring together the value for passing, the value for rushing, and also the value in the playoffs, the 1984 season for Dan Marino was the greatest value add season in NFL history. So he has the greatest rookie season in history, and he has the greatest season period in NFL history when you adjust for era. So he shattered the record for yards and touchdowns. He threw 48 touchdowns. Uh, he shattered the record for yards, getting well, getting well above you know 4,000 yards where it was before. And these records stood for 20-plus years, both of them, the yards and touchdowns. And the touchdown record in particular is pretty insane because the existing record was 36. So as a 33% increase over where the existing record was, where he threw 48. Remember, Tom Brady threw 50 touchdowns in 2007. Marino threw to to break the record. Marino had 48 in 1984. Plus, he had a tremendous playoff run that year, averaging more than 10 yards per attempt, taking zero sacks during the entire playoffs, an attribute that he had like no one else, the ability to avoid sacks with his quick release. But he had a disappointing Super Bowl that they ended up losing. Everyone assumed at the time that Marino, you know, he was in his second season. He would be back in no time at all, but it was never meant to be. He made the conference championship two more times, but never further. And when we talk about Marino and the records that he holds, when he retired, he held the career records for pass completions, yards, and touchdowns, all of them by huge margins. He retired with 10,000 more passing yards than the second place John Elway, who had 50,000 passing yards. He had 60. He retired with 25% more touchdowns than Fran Tarkenton, who had 342. So he had an additional 80 touchdowns on top of that. 
He also held dozens of records for 300-yard passing games, 4,000-yard passing seasons, and the single-season passing yard record of 5,084 yards, which, again, would not be broken for another 20 years until Drew Brees broke that record. And when Brees broke it, it took him 100 more pass attempts in order to get there. Okay, we got to talk about the playoffs, unfortunately, for Marino. Again, the 1984 season was not that bad for him, but didn't end up getting a playoff victory that year. And what happened other times was really being let down by his defense. In his 10 playoff losses, the Miami Dolphins gave up an average of 34 and a half points. That holds down his playoff ranking significantly, especially vis-a-vis some others like Montana and whatnot, who, depending on how you calculate it, I understand why some people would have Montana as being a better quarterback. But I really think that hurts versus a very strong defense that Montana played with for pretty much his entire career. Now, if you're going to pick out an attribute for Marino, some others had this ability, but no one else was like him in avoiding sacks. The quick release, the quick decision-making. He led the NFL when the lowest sack percentage in 10 different seasons, including seven seasons in a row. He had as low as a 1% sack rate in the 1988 season. And it's not like he wasn't playing under pressure. This is a team that could, could not run the ball at all. Throughout his entire career, the Dolphins always had a below league average yards per carry. Quite often, most of the time, at least half a yard below. And this was not, that was also a season where his one losing season where the team went six and 10. So he was playing from behind quite often. Still only took a sack 1% of the time. Maybe you could argue he should have taken a few more hits and that could have led to a little bit more efficiency with all the other tools he had, but it still was an extraordinary value being added that not a lot of people gave credit to the quarterback, at least back then, but it was really Dan Marino doing this, not any sort of great offensive line that he was playing with. Supporting cast for Marino. He had the Marks brothers, Mark Clayton and Mark Duper. And later on in his career, he had Irving Fryer. Fine receivers, but Marino's the only quarterback in the Hall of Fame who never threw a pass to a Hall of Fame player. So never completed a pass to a Hall of, to another Hall of Fame player. Marino's the only person to fall into that category as far as not having support. And I mentioned again, the running game, was really, really bad the entire time. They're about 20 to 30% less efficient than your normal running game. But despite all that, only a losing record in one season. So Marino's efficiency stats were likely hurt due to the fact that he threw with so much volume. I make an adjustment here to give him more credit for that volume. You know, while being placed in bad situations by his team and while having to play from behind more often than he should have for how good that he really was. And while he never won a title, You know, I'd be hard-pressed to say that Marino wasn't the best quarterback of his generation. Even compared to a four-time champion like Joe Montana, when you consider context, when you consider teammates, and when you consider how well he still played in the playoffs many times, he just couldn't get his team to stop anyone. And having to put up 35 points a game to be able to win is going to be difficult no matter how, how great the quarterback is. Dan Marino... While lauded across the board, maybe even needs a little higher standing in some people's minds as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Number three is Otto Graham. 
Now we're going old school here. And I may have misspoken a little bit in the last episode because in the last episode, I said that there were only two real options you could have for the greatest quarterback of, of all time. You can guess who those two options are because I haven't discussed either one of them yet. So Tom Brady or Peyton Manning. The more I've looked into Autogram, and again, I'm not living through this. I don't I, I don't remember watch this on TV. We're talking about a player who played from the late 40s through the early 50s. There might be a case. There might be a good case for Autogram being the best quarterback of all time. Now, I know that's difficult to do, to give credit to an older player like that, but, you know, no era is inherently more valuable than any other era. I know that the competition wasn't the same, the, 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 the regiment wasn't the same, the training wasn't the same. There was a smaller pool of players that you were, that you were pulling from. At the point that he played, he did play in the AAFC, which was integrated earlier than the NFL, but there were problems uh, as far as the leagues not being integrated that would hold down competition. But other than longevity, which Graham did not have, other than longevity, and this is something you should probably give him a boost for because he played in an older era, although there are some older quarterbacks who played a very long time. I do not give him a boost for this. And if you did, you might pump him up a bit there. Other than longevity, there was nothing missing from Otto Graham's resume. He is third overall in the QB GOAT rankings, fourth career, fifth for his peak, and third in the playoffs. So he has all three of the elements working very well for him. Okay, let's go through his timeline here. Now, it's a little bit confusing because they are AAFC championships, which is a precursor league, which then merged with the NFL in 1950. So anything that happened before 1950 is... While there may be a championship, it's not the NFL championship. And then eventually there are NFL championships. But when you're looking at this, five straight league championships to start his career, then three years off, two more to end his career. So only a total of five seasons. And that's what holds down some of his numbers here. But when he did play, and there were not MVP awards every single season that were even awarded in a lot of these different seasons for Otto Graham. It was so long ago. He was first team all pro three different seasons, meaning the best quarterback in the NFL and then MVP another three seasons and then second team all pro another season. So if you think about it in terms of MVP, it's kind of like having six MVPs. Now, Peyton Manning has the most MVPs in NFL history at five, but Graham, it's almost like he had six MVPs in 10 years when he played back then. And there really aren't ways you can knock him too much in his play other than the fact of saying discounting the fact that it was really it was really really an old period so interestingly Graham started off as a basketball player he was the sixth man for the Rochester Royals who later became the Sacramento Kings and he didn't play football until he was 24 years old he was recruited by legendary coach Paul Brown to play for a brand new team in the All-America Football Conference so a startup league like this you might want to discount it but it's actually better in some ways than the AFL was to the NFL initially during those years. Um, there's not a lot of evidence that it was actually that inferior. And I think some people point to the fact that Graham's stats were a bit worse in the NFL as evidence that the AAFC was a worse league, but there's not a whole lot to go by that, I believe. 
I mean, in his first year of operation, the AAFC signed 50% more of the college all-stars than the NFL and about 100 different players so nearly a quarter of the NFL left to go to the AAFC. And they commonly outdrew the NFL counterparts in attendance, too. And they only ran for four years, this league, before it merged with the NFL. But with both the players who it seeded into the NFL, into the league, and then into the NFL, 15 became Hall of Famers. And again, as I mentioned before, they were ahead on racial integration and many other football innovations. It's And another thing to think about when we think about Graham, too, as I mentioned, he's a former basketball player. He was also you know, a pretty good athlete. So he had the passing success leading the NFL and I'm sorry, leading the AFC, AAFC and NFL five different times in the 10 different seasons that he played. So he led the league in passing in addition to that great efficiency. And he also had the rushing. So as a former basketball player, he could move. He didn't accumulate a ton of yards because he didn't run when he didn't, when he didn't necessarily need to, but he did get 882 yards over the course of his career, but even more importantly, 44 touchdowns. He was a goal line scoring machine. So that adds a ton of value. Also someone who could really do it all. Let's go to the playoffs here. So there's really no hole in the resume for Graham, as far as efficiency, volume, team success, and of course, playoff success here. So they won seven titles in, in the 10 years that Graham was there. They competed in the championship game every single season. The Browns had a record of 105 and 17 in the regular season with Otto Graham. So that's winning a percentage of 86% and nine and three in the playoffs. And Graham's playoff success also came with some legendary performances in the playoffs. So in 1950, when the AAFC merged with the NFL, again, members, the upstart league was the AAFC, coming together, outperforming the NFL in a lot of ways. 1950 was the first year you had a showdown to say, who are really the greatest? You have Otto Graham and the Browns, five straight championships, best player in the league, comes in, makes the playoffs, wins the first game, and then goes to the championship game against the Rams in the title game. In this game, the championship, Otto Graham was 22 of 33, 298 yards passing, four touchdowns, one interception. But that's not all. He had 12 rushing attempts for 99 yards in this game. So he personally put up 397 yards. The rest of his team combined had 17 yards. Otto Graham, 397. Rest of Cleveland Browns, 17. And this includes Marion Motley, who was his running back there, who was a Hall of Famer, was a selection to the NFL 100 team. He had six carries for nine yards. Another running back had five carries for two yards. They could get nothing going on the ground. And they basically just turned it over to Autogram to go back, to pass, to scramble, to run, and to completely dominate this game. This might be the greatest game, championship game in history. Not a Super Bowl. Can't say the greatest Super Bowl in history. But you might say the greatest championship game in history. One of many excellent championship performances for Autogram. So again, 
He is someone you could have as number one overall. The thing that hurts him, the lack of longevity there. The lack of longevity holds him down here. But as far as team success, playoff success, big moments, peak play, and generally being recognized for his greatness, no one hits all those boxes at such a high level like Otto Graham did. And again, he was a selection to the NFL 100 team, a unanimous selection to the NFL 100 team. Comes in third here with an age adjustment. You could probably get him up to second or first in this countdown. Okay. Now we have here a drum roll, please. You know, I wish I had a drum machine here because this is going to be the one, the reveal that everyone is going to be waiting for. Who's number one? Who's number two between Tom Brady and Peyton Manning? Well, I feel like I've, I've shamed, I've shamed myself here because I do have Peyton Manning at number two. He comes in number two, according to my statistical quarterback goat ratings. I kind of been pulling a little bit of an okie doke here by on Twitter and on this podcast, being so complimentary of Peyton and maybe a little bit down on Brady here having some people think that it was going to end up being Peyton for number one, but it's just too much, too much to overcome to get to Brady's accumulation, especially what he's added over the last couple of seasons with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So according to my calculation, Peyton Manning doesn't quite make it. He is number two though, overall in value added over his regular season in his career. He is the number one peak though, and kind of by far the number one peak in the NFL for rolling five-year period, and also if you look at it another way, top three seasons, he's way, way above everyone else in that category. 28th in the playoffs. Not awful. Not as awful in the playoffs as you might think. He played a lot of playoff games. He had some good performances. But hard to get up higher when he really did not step up his game in the playoffs, at least statistically. And he didn't have far runs into the playoffs often enough to have a higher value ranking there. Okay. I think everything starts with Peyton by just really trying to paint the picture of how perfect of a prospect he was. So it's almost, if you could write the script for the greatest quarterback of all time, the script would start a lot like what we saw for Peyton Manning, at least if you like the golden boy image, as opposed to the scrappy underdog image. And I think he falls more in line with the goats of other sports, like maybe a, a Michael Jordan, who was the third pick overall, probably should have been higher, uh, who was the Naismith Player of the Year when he was in college, a champion when he was in college. Maybe someone like Serena Williams has been great since she's such at such a young age. Gretzky, great, a phenom at such a young age. All those different types of players. Peyton Manning fit that bill. He was... And as he came back for his final season, his 1980, 19, excuse me, 1997 season to come back to college. He was second in the Heisman voting. So he doesn't have a Heisman. That's his one glaring missing piece there, along with the collegiate championship. Second in the Heisman voting, narrowly edged out by Charles Woodson. But he did win a number of awards. The Maxwell Award for the best collegiate player the Davey O'Brien and the John Unitas Golden Arm Award, which were for the best collegiate quarterback. 
He won the William Campbell Award for Best Combination of Academics, Community Service, and On-Field Performance, SEC Player of the Year. His number was retired by Tennessee, and he is in the College Football Hall of Fame. And if you look, oh, another thing was, as far as how good it was he as a prospect, if you can believe him or not, Mel Kuyper says that going back to 1979, when he started rating quarterbacks, that Peyton Manning is his third best prospect that he had ever seen behind only John Elway and Andrew Luck as the two others. Okay, there's no more decorated quarterback in the NFL when it comes to accolades. Five-time MVP winner Peyton Manning, which is a record. Seven first-team All-Pros, another record. Three second-team All-Pros. 14 total Pro Bowls. And he finished his career with the most yards and touchdowns ever. Those are gone. But he does still hold the records for most yards and touchdowns in a season that 2013 season with MVP season with the Denver Broncos. And he also holds the record for most touchdowns in a game, seven in a game, which I believe was also the first week of that 2013 season. Talking about his passing efficiency in these seasons. And I'm actually going to go by expected points added since we have that now for players who are beyond 2000. We have a better advanced statistic even. So for Manning in 17 starting seasons, he was sixth, so sorry, he was first in expected points added per play six times, second five times. So we're already up to 11 out of those 17 seasons. He's either first or second. Altogether, he was in the top five in efficiency 13 times, and he was only twice outside of the top 10 in efficiency. His rookie season and his final season when everything fell off a cliff. Other than that, he was the top 10 every single season in efficiency. Um. So if you look at this time spanning here, again, first or second per play in efficiency 10 times. Brady did that six times. Rogers done it four times. Breeze four times. Rivers four times. So almost doubling everyone else as far as that's concerned. Okay, if you look at quarterbacks with at least 5,000 plays since 1999, expected points added, Manning is first over anyone in EPA per play. Also first in success rate above Rogers, Brady, Breeze, Rivers. It doesn't matter. Those are the top guys there above everyone else there, even without some adjustments for the fact that he's the oldest of all those different quarterbacks on the list. So Peyton really did get started firing out of the gate. Now, I know people like to point to Peyton's interceptions that he had. You'll even see some quite embarrassing stats sometimes where they'll compare Peyton Manning's rookie season to others and say, Hey, Peyton Manning had 26 touchdowns and 28 interceptions as a rookie. He had the most interceptions in the NFL as a rookie. So therefore, if you have a horrible rookie season, you can turn out to be Peyton Manning. Well, the reality is, you know, it's a different era. Number one, number two, he was getting a healthy yards per attempt, almost around seven that season. Number three, his sack rate was down at three, 3.7%. So he wasn't taking sacks there. And he was recognized also for how well he was playing. He was second in offensive rookie of the year award for 1998. And it's kind of tough to be first when Randy Moss's rookie year was that season. And Moss was putting up 1300 receiving yards and 17 touchdowns as a rookie. Then in Manning's second season, he went straight to second team all pro Kurt Warner was first team all pro that season and MVP that season. 
So if you look at EPA per play, it's basically Warner, there's a gap, there's Manning, and then there's everyone else. So at 23 years old, Peyton Manning was already being lauded, getting accolades as the second best quarterback in the NFL. And even the fact that he got any votes, that it wasn't unanimous for Kurt Warner for the All-Pro team shows how great of a season he had there. He took also the Colts from being a 3-13 and team before he showed up there. In his second season, they were a 13-3 and team, one of the biggest turnarounds in NFL history. The next season, Manning ranked first in EPA per play, uh, but Rich Gannon was the first-team All-Pro selection with 16 votes to Manning's 13, and Marshall Falk was the MVP. Manning did receive MVP votes that year, though after being the most efficient quarterback in the NFL. So that's how he's starting. So he's starting off extremely hot here, too. He had a couple of down years. Then he came right back with an MVP in 2003. And in 2004, he has, according to my numbers, the second best season in NFL history. Now, in 2003, he he shared the MVP award with Steve McNair. Um, And if you think about that 2004 season... He has the highest efficiency on record. He just didn't have the volume that Dan Marino had. But he has the highest efficiency on record that season. And even in the playoffs that year, he started off on fire in the 2004 playoffs. 458 yards, four touchdowns versus the Broncos. And then he went to the old Gillette Stadium for one of his many disappointments. Even in a year where Manning was shattering what was thought is possible for efficiency wise. They only had an 11 and five record for the Colts. The Patriots were 14 and two. The Patriots had home field and Manning was inefficient in that game, but not really awful. He had 238 passing yards and an interception, but you know, Tom Brady on the other side didn't have to do a whole lot because the running game for the Patriots, the Colts defense could do nothing. The, The Patriots outgained the Colts by 160 yards on the ground. Brady threw 27 passes for 144 yards, and that was it. So it ended with a whimper, a 23 loss in the snow in Foxborough. 2005 is an interesting season for Manning because he's first-team All-Pro, meaning the best quarterback in the NFL, but he did not win the MVP. Why did he not win the MVP award? I'm not sure. But they gave it to Sean Alexander. What's funny about Sean Alexander winning this award is that I'm not even sure he was the best running back in the NFL that year. So Sean Alexander had 1,880 rushing yards. Tiki Barber had 1,860 rushing yards. Alexander had 78 receiving yards. Tiki Barber had 530 receiving yards. Alexander did have 28 touchdowns to Barber's 11, so that's part of it. But then again, he had five touchdowns to Barber's one. So it's kind of funny that Sean Alexander won that award. I'm not even sure he was the best running back that year. But it's also interesting to see that Manning leads the NFL with five MVPs, but he also had two first-team All-Pro selections where he didn't win the MVP. So two times a running back won instead of him, Alexander in 2005, and then Adrian Peterson in 2012. So conceivably, it could have been seven MVPs for Manning, putting him even even further out to reach. An underplayed story in Manning's career, although it's not as if it hasn't been commented on, but an underplayed story is probably the neck injury and the potential effect that it had on his performance, not just 
missing time, missing the season, and then potentially ending his career early. But I didn't realize the play where it supposedly happened happened a lot earlier than the surgery. The surgery happened in 2010. The play that Tony Dungy attributes it to, I'm not sure if it's for Manning or not, happened against a Greg Williams-coached uh, uh, Redskins defense in 2006. And Tony, Tony Dungy said that after their, thereafter, Manning's reps were decreased in the following season. So eventually he had to have surgery. And, you know, could just be a coincidence here. But if you look, Manning's efficiency did decline fairly steadily from 2006 down to 2010. There were also contributing factors with the offensive line being worse. They couldn't run the ball as well. They had the 30th or 31st pass blocking grading multiple times, the Colts during that stretch. But Manning was still seen as carrying that team and actually won two more MVPs during that stretch, despite those not being the best years of his career. So as I mentioned, he's, he's, he, he's having so much nerve damage that he can't, he's having atrophy of the arm. He can't feel it as well. He finally decides to have surgery in before the 2011 season. And what's interesting about it is even afterwards, he talked about how he never got feeling back in his fingertips. So he, he doesn't feel anything in his right hand, in his fingertips ever since that surgery. And the surgery is pretty gnarly. They actually, they actually inserted a, I don't know what you would call it, a, a plate, I guess, with four different screws, two screws into two different vertebrae in his neck to stabilize it. So he was able to continue playing. It eventually got strengthened. He went from not being able to throw basically at all. And then he came back, of course, and then transitioned over to his years with the Broncos. And then his performance picked back up again. 2012, as I mentioned, he comes through, has the best efficiency in the NFL, First team all pro does not win MVP because of Adrian Peterson. And then we have the 2013 season. So Manning having the second best season of all time in 2014, I'm sorry, 2004, according to my rankings. Now in 2013 comes ranking as the fifth best season of all time. So Peyton Manning, by himself has the second and fifth best season of all time. Just to give an idea, Tom Brady has the third best season of all time. And then the next time Tom Brady shows up on this list is more like the 25th best season of all time. So he comes back MVP shatters the record for touchdowns and uh, yards, but does not win the championship in a poor performance in the Super Bowl against the Seattle Seahawks. And if we look at his decline, we had a very interesting arc to Manning's decline and probably related to the neck injury, of course. Even after the 2013 season where he's breaking all these records, he came out the first eight weeks of the 2014 season and was the most efficient quarterback in the NFL, leading in EPA per play, second highest completion percentage over expectation at that time through the first eight weeks of the season. But this is really the demarcation point is midway through 2014 is really when old Peyton and, and dust Peyton starts to happen because the rest of the season, he falls down to being below league average in efficiency, basically around the league average in his completion percentage over expectation. And he has a really poor playoffs as they play worse and worse as the, as the season goes on. And then he comes back in 2015 and 
he has he's the worst quarterback in the NFL for his efficiency, worst quarterback in the NFL for his completion percentage over ex- expectation. And that actually hurts his numbers. Those are negatives, big negatives for the calculation here. Now, if he didn't play that 2015 season, that would not be enough. It would only make up about half of the ground to get to Tom Brady's level, according to my calculation. But he didn't do himself any favors by this calculation in how high he is ranked, although he did end up winning a Super Bowl, which is interesting to see how quarterback play and Super Bowls are not necessarily one-to-one. In fact, if you're looking at his seasons here, all of his different playoff seasons, he had a 6.3 adjusted net yards per attempt, which is worse than his career average, but not awful. So he was not bad, bad during the season. He was above average quarterback play, but not Peyton Manning type of play. And the thing is, if you look at his best seasons here, his six best seasons by adjusted net yards per attempt in the playoffs, his six best playoff runs, all above seven, so all above his career average there, in these six playoff runs, we have we have five victories and six losses. So again, what the quarterback can, can control or cannot control is pretty tough here when it comes down to it a lot of different times. It's tough to be able to, you know, will your team to victory when you have good years, sometimes you don't play as well. And then when you have bad years, 2006 and 2015 were two of his worst years as far as how well he played in the playoffs. And then they ended up winning two championships at that point. So I think people will knock Peyton by saying he was bad in 2006 and beat the Bears in the Super Bowl. That's true. But he was also good in a lot of different playoff runs, very often having to go to Foxborough because they had a worse record where he was winning the games in Indianapolis or in Denver and losing the games when they went to Foxborough, most often his team not being the more complete team with the better record during the regular season. Uh, I also think this is a perfect illustration of some of the things that happened with, with Manning here. I mean, one of these losses that we're talking about to the Jets, 17-16, and this happened in the 2010 playoffs here, one of his better playoff runs, I say, like, how does this happen? How does he end up losing when, according to this, he has 0.33 EPA per play, which is an elite number, which is an MVP-type number? How do they only score 16 points during during this game? Well, let's look down a little bit. If you look down at rushing versus passing, they actually ran the ball one more time than they passed the ball, but their rushing was losing about a fifth of a point every single time they ran the ball versus the Jets were gaining, you know, a fifth, a sixth of a point every single time they were running the ball. For some reason, the Colts end up at home also in Indianapolis running the ball more than they were passing the ball. And then they ended up losing this game and Manning still playing at a very, very high level. That happened way too often. And there just shouldn't be games where Manning's passing the ball that few times in the playoffs. Uh, and also another interesting calculation here. I, I did this before with Rodgers. I wanted to bring it in with Manning here where I looked at their efficiency in each of the playoff games and you calculate an expected win percentage based upon if a quarterback plays at a certain level, how often would you expect him to win the game? There's a pretty strong relationship between quarterback play and winning or losing in these games. So I am adjusting things a little bit here. 2014 and 2015 is gone. As I showed you earlier, Peyton Manning was done by the, by the time he got midway through the 2014 season. He went from MVP, MVP level play in the first half of 2014 to league average or worse during the second half. 
to worst in the league in 2015. So I am juking it a little bit, juking the stats here, not including 2014 and 2015 because he won a lot of games at that time too. They won the Super Bowl, but it wasn't because of Peyton Manning. But let's look at the other times where Peyton Manning was losing the games, wasn't coming through, wasn't being clutch. So if you looked at all those different games, how well he played in each game, add up the expected wins according to the expected win percentage on this. While Manning isn't great, he isn't topping the list. In these 22 playoff games, to say he had a 53.6% expected winning percentage versus Tom Brady's career 54.3%, you know, not that big of a difference, really. Now, of course, his team only won 50% of those games. Brady's Patriots won almost 75% of those games. And I'll discuss this a little bit more when it comes to Brady, but a lot of that is just you're coming off of a bye, so it's a little bit easier when you have team success. You're playing at home. And again, I think a combination of good defense and good luck for the Patriots probably came through a lot, especially in those divisional and conference championships. Not quite as much so in the Super Bowl, where they lost some Super Bowls that they could have that they could have won there. But Manning, again, not good in the playoffs, not great in the playoffs, but we're talking about a degree of difference between how he played versus how maybe Tom Brady played, where people think they're completely on different sides of the world as far as how well they played in the playoffs. So, you know, Manning's number two. Not much else I can really say about it. Um, Again, he did not have a chance to really be the GOAT here because of this last little play here for for Tom Brady at the end. Um, But still, no more decorated quarterback when it comes to not only the type of prospect he was coming out, of college, but then the type of pro he ended up being, at least in those regular season accolades, there's never been another like Peyton Manning. All right, let's get on to number one, the GOAT, Tom Brady. Number, he's number one in his career accumulation, number four peak and number 13 in the playoffs. Again, people are going to think that's apocryphal having Brady at 13th in the playoffs. We are talking about of all time. And again, I'll show some of his numbers are maybe not quite as good in the playoffs as we think. Did he make some clutch plays? I'm sure he did. Um, did he have defense keep him in those games to make some clutch plays? Yeah, he did, especially earlier on in his career. Okay, let's look at Tom Brady's career. A lot of rings. A lot of rings for Tom Brady. The seven rings, everyone knows about that. And I think there are really one, two, three, four. I think there's five phases, I'll say, to Tom Brady's career. What's interesting is... The thought might be that Tom Brady really became Tom Brady in 2007, where he broke out with the MVP MVP season. I would say, actually, Tom Brady kind of became Tom Brady in 2004. And what's weird about that is he won the championship in 2001, 2002, and 2003. But I think that was actually still during more of the game manager phase of Tom Brady's career. I mean, in the first Super Bowl run where they won the Super Bowl in 2001, Tom Brady averaged fewer than 200 yards per game in those three playoff games and threw one total touchdown during three playoff games. It's hard to say that he was really Tom Brady at that point in time. So if we compare the first three years of Brady's career to the second three years of Brady's career, his yards per attempt jumps from 6.4 to 7.5. That's the main part of quarterback efficiency, quarterback play, throwing the ball down the field more rather than just managing things. 
And his touchdown percentage jumps from 4.3% to 5.1%. So becoming more of the reason that they're winning as opposed to the reason that they're not losing in those types of games. And then it all exploded in 2007. The additions of Randy Moss, Wes Welker, also Dante Stallworth was a nice little player there. Brady went from being one of the most talent deficient quarterbacks when it came to receivers around him to having three, one, you know, greatest of all time option, one near Hall of Fame option in Welker. I mean, Welker's not going to make it, but he, he had some several great years there. And then also Dante Stallworth coming in there as a nice third option who was, who, you know, pick up 600, 700 yards as a third option next to the, these other two there. Brady, third greatest season of all time, according to my numbers, breaking the records for touchdown passes with 50 in a season. Patriots, as we all know, 16-0, first team to ever accomplish a perfect record during the season. And what I would say is that what's weird about this 2007 season, something that holds it down a bit by my value calculation is he wasn't great in the playoffs. I mean, even beyond the... Super Bowl. I mean, the divisional round, he was good. Divisional round, 9.3 yards per attempt, three touchdowns, no interceptions. And then in the conference championship, he struggled a bit. In the conference championship and the Super Bowl that year, he averaged less than six yards per attempt, three total touchdowns, and three interceptions. And he was also sacked on 8% of his dropbacks during those two games versus 3.5% during the regular season. So it, it, it just shows you sometimes when you're at your highest level, the greatest teammates the greatest Super Bowl winning player, his best season by far, couldn't put together the best playoffs. And that could happen to almost anyone. Okay, so Brady, you know, tore his ACL in the first quarter of the first game of the 2008 season. Um, and the Patriots still went on to go 11-5 and five with Matt Castle was there. That kind of became part of the Brady-Belichick debate, which I always leaned more towards, way more towards Brady being the reason. And I think Tampa Bay has not only helped Brady show that he can still be a great quarterback somewhere else, but it's also helped show and dispute some of the narrative that he was a product of the system or product of Belichick. And again, when we're going to talk Super Bowls versus how good you are in winning, well, after he came back from injury in 2009, it was still Moss and Welker there. So a good year for Brady. Then, Gronk and Hernandez got there. Whatever you say about Hernandez, dude could play. Uh, and they were there for a three-year period before 2013 when Gronk got injured and they had a down year there. But I'd say that 20, 2007 to 2012 was the best stretch of Brady's career in terms of efficiency. And that's five seasons, zero championships for Brady during that time. So when Brady was at his peak, had his best weapons around him, he got zero championships. It's not all the quarterback winning these championships here. Uh, in 2013, you know, Gronk got injured. Aaron Hernandez got arrested. Uh, Wes Welker left to the Broncos. Danny Woodhead left. Everything happened. But I think the next stretch here where Gronk was kind of in and out of the lineup sometimes, especially in 2015, where Gronk missed most of the second half of the season, Brady still was playing at a high, high level. One of the best seasons of his of his career. And then 2016, again, Gronk out for most of that time, not a lot of talent around there. He's 
second team all pro behind only Matt Ryan, who had a fantastic MVP season, and he wins another ring on the miraculous comeback in the Super Bowl. Those types of seasons are the ones that really stand out to me, where you could say, didn't have the supporting cast, missing Gronk, who a lot of people associate him needing Gronk for some reason, still leading the league or being right there with Matt Ryan in efficiency, and then going on and winning the championship. That is probably one of the most impressive years of his entire career playing at such a high level. Uh, He goes on to win the MVP in 2017, which was kind of a down year for the NFL. Generally, Rodgers was injured. All these other guys had retired. Carson Wentz was in MVP contention before getting injured near the end of the season. And then, of course, he wins the last ring in 2018 with the Patriots, but the offense was not really humming much at that point. And then he had his one and only below average efficiency season in 2019 before jumping over to Tampa Bay. Now, playoffs. It's a big, big, big subject for Brady because there are a lot of games, 47 different games for Tom Brady. His efficiency slightly down in the playoffs versus where you would have seen him during the regular season. But they won a lot of games. If you think about their AFC, and they played a lot better in the divisional round in the conference championships than in the Super Bowl, because they did lose some Super Bowl games that they should have, uh, well, should have won. They probably won some they should have lost. But 24 of the 31 AFC playoff games that Brady played with the Patriots were at home, and they had a bye in 13 of the 17 seasons, which ended up making a huge, huge difference for how high the winning percentage is there. But if you look at those first three seasons, when he won the first three championships, not the greatest efficiency there. And then if you look at his best efficiency seasons that he's had, he's, his best efficiency seasons in the playoffs were 2005, 2011, 2017, and 2020. So he did win one championship in those seasons, but his best season by how he played was 2017, losing to Nick Folk. That was the best season that he could possibly have had. Uh, Nick Foles, excuse me, Nick Folk. I'm going to go into kickers here. Uh, Nick Foles in 2017. Uh, that was really the greatest run that he had. Almost 1,200 yards, almost 300 yards a game, eight touchdowns, zero interceptions, only took four sacks for 17 yards, averaging over eight yards per attempt, but couldn't come away with the Super Bowl trophy. Another one where he was the best quarterback and best player in the NFL that year, but did not win. So Brady's the GOAT. I feel satisfied with this. Again, if these last couple of years at Tampa hadn't happened, I would have questioned it a bit more. But I think that answered not only the ability to go on to accumulate even more, which you start you start putting up these numbers into your mid-40s and playing at an MVP-adjacent level. You can't deny that. And it puts to bed all of the Belichick-Brady narratives that anyone may have had and may have been able to use against him to now his claim as the greatest quarterback of all time. All right, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this exercise. It actually took a decent amount of work on my part, believe it or not. So this is my this is my list. This is my rankings for the statistics. I know that I've said that I would adjust some things around a little bit. Got questions, got concerns, leave me a comment in YouTube. I like to look at those. Go ahead and rate and review the pod if you like what you're hearing here. Now that we have training camp started, we'll have something to talk about going into next week, probably also a Deshaun Watson decision coming very, very soon. 
everyone, please go ahead and tune in next week. Otherwise, I'll be talking at all of you then. Thanks so much.